So I thought, Shahid, that on the same day that Nintendo just announced essentially their best holiday quarter in 10 years, not just for Nintendo, but for other other console makers as well. You know, the the Nintendo Switch has surpassed uh, 50 million units sold in less than three years. Yeah, it's incredible. And I thought with all these amazing news and all these amazing numbers, I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to talk about failures. (laughs) Just (laughs) just to stay very on topic. But not just... um, Failures like uh, we you you label this. I think it's a very good title. Heroic failures. So what 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 do you mean by that? How do you did you have this idea? What I mean is that given different circumstances, these devices might have worked. I'm not talking about complete turkeys here. Mm. What I mean are devices that are good devices. You know, people love the devices, and there was a market, but by the I guess by the highest aims of the company that created them, they didn't hit those marks that they had hoped. And also, I guess in a sense, and you'll know exactly where I'm coming from when I say this, that the people who loved the devices (laughs) felt like more could have been done for them, you Mm. know? Uh, and, and in that sense, they didn't live up to the expectations, not of the commentators, not of those people, but of the people who bought them and the companies that made them and the developers and publishers who created software for them. That's a really good way to think about it. Um, so in, in the context of what we're discussing, though, what do you think constitutes a failure? Is that a, a failure in the commercial sense or is it is a PR failure in terms of like the public perception of a console or something else? I I think less the public perception, more Mm. the commercial reception. So how well did it do in the market? Did it match or exceed the expectations of the company that created it? And did the people who bought the device feel like they were well served? And if that wasn't the case, then I would consider that a commercial failure. I would consider it a heroic failure if there was a really devoted fan base so that Mm. even though it was a commercial failure in the eyes of the company that created it, it was a heroic failure in that the fans and the developers somehow managed to keep things going. Or, better still, that it was the precursor to an even better successor. And without that device, the successor... Or the success of the successor <laughs> would never have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is actually taking a look at my notes is something that that happened quite often. So we have a few examples that we would like to share, and I have some examples, and Shahid has a bunch of other of some more. I wanted to start so in the context of what you just mentioned. What's a a heroic failure that maybe led to something even better later? The first device that came to my mind, of course, was the Nintendo GameCube. So the Nintendo GameCube, it came out in 2001. Uh, and historically, I think it's uh, it sold uh, 21.7. This is a figure from Wikipedia. So it's probably around 22 million units worldwide. So uh, again, especially if you consider... Uh, other numbers like even the Super Nintendo or now the Nintendo Switch is not a lot by Nintendo standards. Um, the GameCube had a had a really devoted fan base uh, at the time, but it was affected by a bunch of 
technical problems and I guess <laughs> problematic circumstances for Nintendo. So uh, the GameCube had a, a proprietary mini game disc format, which in itself like it, it wasn't a big deal like sure you can store your games on a different proprietary type of format but it was a problem in the sense that it did not support dvd playback and today they may seem silly uh, or even like short-sighted to say well why would a console fail because it didn't support dvd or cd playback for that matter but it was the early 2000s, and the PlayStation very famously supported CD audio playback. The PlayStation 2 supported DVD playback. And so many people relied on the PlayStation 2, in addition to being a console, as a DVD player for movies. And the fact that the GameCube did not support this, did not play into that vision at the time, that idea that your gaming console could also be sort of an entertainment center. And this was before the days of Netflix and streaming and, you know, online services. But it was important to have that, I believe, to have that kind of choice, you know, whether you want to play a game or you want to watch a movie, you can do it all with a single piece of equipment. Um, the PlayStation 2 was also a problem for the GameCube because the GameCube was basically destroyed by the, the by the PS2. It was, uh, in terms of performance, it was outperformed by the PlayStation 2. And really the main problem, it was outgrown by the PlayStation 2 and the library of games that were available on the PS2. And not just the like the usual kind of like Sony Western games that you might expect from the PlayStation 2, but the types of games for a Japanese audience that you would expect on, on a Nintendo console that were actually available on the PlayStation 2. So um, adventure games or uh, JRPGs, for example, there was so much choice on the PlayStation 2 and so very little choice on the Nintendo GameCube. It was not backward compatible. Of course, it was the successor to the Nintendo 64, which used cartridges. And so you, it didn't have a library of compatible old games, whereas the PlayStation 2 could play PlayStation 1 games. And I know that, you know, by the end of the life cycle, nobody was playing uh, PS1 games on the PS2, but it was still an important checkbox to be able to tick in a list of features. Um, and of course, the Nintendo first-party games were good, were excellent. I mean, we're talking Super Mario Sunshine, Zelda Wind Waker, and we're talking Pikmin, which was a brand new franchise, Super Smash Bros. Melee, which is still played competitively today. But it was really, the GameCube was a really good example of Nintendo being unable to attract third-party developers. Um, so it didn't sell well, and it didn't do any well to Nintendo's finances. But the GameCube, I believe, should be considered an heroic failure because it set Nintendo on a path of reinvention that would allow them later to follow up to the GameCube with a little console called the Nintendo Wii. And arguably, had Nintendo failed so much and so publicly with the GameCube, maybe we wouldn't have the Nintendo Wii today, and maybe things in the entire video game industry would have gone really different. Um, because I believe that with the GameCube, Nintendo understood that there was a strength in 
offering their own first-party games. And the Wii would continue that strategy. Of course, people buy Nintendo consoles because they have Nintendo games. But I believe that the, with the GameCube, Nintendo understood if we cannot attract third-party developers on our own, and if we cannot beat the Xbox and the PlayStation on a performance standpoint, maybe we should come up with something completely different that swerves in a different direction and finds a new, uh, new audience, which will be called you know, the Blue Ocean Strategy later, and something completely different so that we let the developers come to us and we let we discover a new audience so that it becomes impossible for people to ignore us. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or you can add your own perspective, that the GameCube was essential to come up with that strategy. I totally agree. I think every company that has this kind of heroic failure has this day of reckoning where it stares into its corporate soul and has to ask itself some very difficult questions. What are we about? Who are our customers? Were we true to our philosophy? And I think with the GameCube, much as I loved it, and I know a lot of people loved the GameCube, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't true to Nintendo. Mm. They moved away from cartridge, which gave the immediacy of a toy. Mm. There was a beauty in that, in that you just put the cartridge in and started playing. But when they sacrificed that in order to achieve a speed of distribution for, for their partners, they sacrificed everything else that were benefits of um, an optical medium. And as you rightly point out, PlayStation had a big advantage in that you could play DVDs with the mm -hmm. PS2. And that, certainly in the beginning, these extras, these hand-holding gestures are really important in establishing market share while development catches up to the new hardware. And we've seen this time and time again. You mentioned backwards compatibility. That can be an important factor while people wait for new software to arrive. But the DVD playback, I think in this case, was a real killer. What they did was they stepped off the rock of cartridge and they, they slipped on a new slippery rock <laughs> and removed their foot too quickly from the cartridge. And of course, with the Switch, you've seen a return to the roots with cartridge without sacrificing the new stuff. You know, you can still do the digital download if you want to. So all I think you, the main point here is companies have this day of reckoning where they realize that they've sacrificed their principles, they have not achieved the success that they expected. And because of that, they wake up to the reality of who they are and they either adjust or they die. Yeah. Yeah. The next example, also a Nintendo one, is similar but also very different. Uh, the Nintendo Wii U. Again, very public failure. Uh, the Wii U was released in 2012 and to date, it sold 13.5 million units. So even way less than the Wii U. I think the, than the GameCube. I think the Wii U it must has to be amongst the, um, the the from a commercial perspective, the worst Nintendo consoles ever. Uh, I mean, just above the Virtual Boy, I guess. Um, it did very poorly. Uh, 
the Wii U was a was a strange proposition, a strange console. Um, so it was a successor to the Wii, which in itself was a was a was a tall order for Nintendo to follow up to that console. Uh, the, the Nintendo Wii had incredible sales and incredible um, mind share, even though in its final part of the life cycle, maybe the novelty had worn off, but the Nintendo Wii still was uh, just an incredible success for Nintendo. And with the Wii U, it's important to understand the historical context of what happened. So 2012, we're talking the beginning of the well, maybe the first few years of the smartphone era, and not just smartphones, but tablets as well. So the iPad, which came out in 2010, uh, and just in general, the beginning of really, really fierce competition from mobile gaming. People had begun spending their free time, not necessarily playing games in front of a TV, but playing games on a phone or on a tablet. Now, this was a problem for Nintendo because they thought that in this situation, what they would do instead of the Nintendo Wii with the motion controls, again, instead of going for power and trying to compete with the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, they thought they would do something different, which in itself was an okay idea. Sure, people were expecting Nintendo to uh, reinvent themselves again uh, with, a, with a new type of controller and a new type of console. The problem, though, is that they tried to put a foot in the door of mobile gaming and tablets by building a controller that was sort of like a tablet that you could hold in your hands, but really wasn't. Uh, the gamepad which was the main idea of the Nintendo Wii U, which was so, sort of a, of a mix between a tablet and the dual screen idea of the Nintendo DS and the 3DS. But the idea was you have a screen in your hands and you have a screen on the TV and the console outputs content on the TV, but you can also look at other content on the Wii U. So it was like, let's take the Nintendo DS and put the second screen in your hands and actually have it be sort of like a tablet. The problem, though, is that it was twofold. Really, it wasn't as as intuitive or as good as a tablet. And it wasn't a thing, the, the Wii U gamepad was not a, an accessory that you could use on its own. It wasn't its own thing. It was dependent on the console. You, it wasn't like you could uh, take a game away from the console and continue playing that game with the Wii U gamepad. The Wii U gamepad had to be played in front of the TV. And some games supported the idea of leaving the console off and continuing to play the game on the gamepad itself. So like, for example, maybe your uh, partner wanted to watch TV and you wanted to play a game and you could continue playing that game on the gamepad. But so very few games supported this feature and so very few games actually took advantage of the dual screen setup of the Wii U gamepad. The result was arguably even a... a a less inspired collection of games from Nintendo, like the the Nintendo first-party games on the Wii U, I would say were not as good as the Nintendo first-party games on the on the Wii and the um, and the GameCube. There were a lot of gems, especially in the later years, which in fact we've seen come to, to the Nintendo Switch. I mean, Mario Kart Eight is an example. Um, 
but um, I believe there were stronger offerings from Nintendo in the past. But really, again, the problem, third-party developers. Nobody was making <laughs> third-party titles for the Wii U. And so Nintendo was stuck uh, in this situation where tablets had, were starting to become a thing and people were playing games on smartphones. They tried to go again for something more something new and novel and different and weird but it wasn't really playing out that well because it was super limited and and the gamepad was really not a good accessory it was plasticky and the screen was not good and it didn't behave like a tablet um the ps4 came out during the <laughs> the cycle of the nintendo wii u which again a uh, bit of a problem for nintendo and the collection of games was not really strong so it was a, a confusing message. It was a uh, you know it, it wasn't a cl- as clear as an idea as the Nintendo Wii with the Wiimote. It was confusing. It wasn't really good. But here's where I would propose to you, Shahid, the twist that I believe deserves the title of heroic failure for the <laughs> Wii U. But with the Wii U, Nintendo understood that they had made the wrong accessory for the right idea, which was, (laughs) why don't you have a console that you can play on the TV or you can take with you in a portable form factor? And in fact, the follow-up to the Wii U is the Nintendo Switch. Incredible success so far. It takes that core idea that was hiding in there amongst this confusing collection of ideas of the Nintendo Wii U, it takes that that single idea, that seed of a concept, and expands it to its logical conclusion, which is, it's a single console that you drop in a dock and you play on the TV, or you take it out and you play on the go. What would you, what would you say to this? You know, it's funny, the distinction between a heroic failure and a smash hit success can be so subtle. Like Mm. in the case of the Wii U, you here you have a product that was conceived and built by uh, the same group of people who designed the Switch. There were purpose-built factories for both of these teams in the same area. They spent a fortune on these factories and on the teams. So there's the same distinct DNA. But with the Wii U, what Nintendo did was they created a product for a market that didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. The difference with the Switch was, here was a product for a market that they created. In other words, they met an unmet need. With Mm. the Wii U, there was no unmet need. And so although there was innovation, there was just no demand from the market. And this is something that Apple has done very successfully time and time again, created a brand new market. I mean, as as far as wearables are concerned, is there anything better than an Apple Watch out there? And I didn't know I needed an Apple Watch until I had one, and I've not stopped wearing it since. And with the Switch, I didn't... I, actually, you know, <laughs> when it was announced, we all knew. I knew yeah. exactly how it would be used, mm-hmm. uh, and I knew it was going to be a success. You just know they had absolutely everything right. And... The the great thing about it for me was they created the need by creating a product that was so desirable and so useful and so usable that it was almost inevitable that it was successful. It would have been very hard for Nintendo to mess that up. But the thing I really loved about the Switch 
compared to the Wii U. And this is what makes the differences between the two obvious rather than subtle. Was that Nintendo knew how to communicate the desirability of the Switch. But they didn't have a clue how to communicate the desirability of the Wii U. Because Mm. I don't think they themselves understood it. They were hoping to meet a need. But with the Switch, they knew. And in fact, you remember the original commercial. They showed all of the use cases that previously didn't exist. Yeah. And they were wonderful. And they, they've all happened. So the communication of the idea was absolutely fantastic with the Switch and with the Wii U. So confused that to this day, it remains the only Nintendo console I've never owned. Oh, sorry, apart from the Virtual Boy. But does that count? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> really? You had one? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. That was the only oh, one I didn't did. have. Oh, yeah. So, okay. Yeah, apart from the Virtual Boy, the Wii U was the only Nintendo I didn't buy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you missed much. And all the, all those first-party games are back on the Switch anyway. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it, it must be really annoying from your perspective to hear me rave on about Mario Kart, you having seen it on Wii U already. But for me, it was like a brand new game. No, and yeah, I suspect there totally. are a lot of people out there for whom it was, it felt like a brand new game. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's so fascinating to, like, if just a few things are are gone differently, you know, and you change a few factors and the timeline would have been completely different, but here's where we are now. Um, My final example, of course, Shahid, uh, PlayStation Vita. I do. I I need to talk about it. I I need to mention it because I think of all of these, it's at least from my perspective. Well, maybe mm, it's a top contender with the Wii U for for the most heroic failure. I would say. Um, <laughs> so the Vita came out in late 2011 in Japan, and it launched in 2012 elsewhere. It came out about the same time as the Nintendo 3DS. Uh, now there are no exact sales numbers, like official sales numbers from Sony. But if you take a look around the different sources, different estimates, you can see that most people believe that um, the Vita had sold uh, 15 or 16 million units by 2018. So um, not a lot, still better than the Wii U, though. So that's something. Now, the Vita was, of course, the successor to the PSP, and it was Sony's answer to the 3DS, which was Nintendo's own successor to the DS. And... So I remember the, the beta launch uh, as a customer, and I mean, <laughs> I guess you remember it as well, Shahid, um, uh, very clearly. So this entire message of uh, Sony was betting on the raw power and, and of the Vita and the, and the design aesthetic and, uh, you know, having this premium feel, premium performance in a portable console, a high-end portable console that could let you play console quality, I mean, home console quality games with advanced 3D graphics on a portable device that was elegant, that was beautiful, that was lightweight, and that also had a bunch of innovations like a like an OLED display and a touch screen and a touchpad in the back and dual sticks. It was a really, really good piece of hardware. I loved my Vita. But it was interesting how it changed over time. So the Vita started as, it's like a mini PlayStation 3 and you can play 
new versions of PlayStation 3 titles on the go. And so they launched with a with a Vita-specific version of Uncharted, and then you could play God of War, and you could play a Metal Gear Solid game. But then after a couple of years, I think it changed, and the Sony's focus shifted to sort of pushing the Vita as this kind of more niche console that was like a like like a like a safe haven for indie developers and so it became at a bit of a second life uh the vita that was truly amazing to see at least from my perspective it became this amazing console amazing portable console that you could use to play all kinds of indie titles that you could download from the playstation store and so hotline miami and you had your uh, your Vlambeer games. You had all these this crazy collection of indie games that the Vita was from that perspective. The Nintendo Switch before the Nintendo Switch, it had this amazing roster of indie games for which a certain person and podcaster is partly responsible for. Uh, we may be able to hear from this person soon on the show, uh, and it was truly incredible to see what happened, uh, you know, in terms of, like, the reinvention of the Vita. Now, of course, it was also Sony's final portable console. Uh, Sony later uh, obviously shifted its focus to just the PlayStation 4, and and now Sony, of course, is thinking about and doing the PS5 in 2020. And so the Vita sort of started fading as Sony stopped making its own games for the Vita and developers, um, indie developers started uh, releasing their games either on the App Store or just on the PS4 or on the Nintendo Switch later. Um, now, Shay, is there, is there, I mean, obviously you're close, you're close to this project, you're close to the Vita. Um, is there anything that, that you're willing to say about the Vita? Because I do believe from my perspective that it should be considered a heroic failure because it, if only it gave, it, it proved the point, I think, for, from the outside. I see the Vita as a console that proved the point, which is there's so much amazing content that can be found in the indie developer community. And when you don't have AAA titles uh, coming out, you can trust indie developers. You can trust developers to come out with a collection of games that are just as entertaining, as beautiful, as innovative, as as you know, emotional as a AAA title. And I think the Vita proved that point. Is there anything that you would add to this? I think you summarized it really mm. well. Uh, there was a definite shift, and it's no secret that I pushed that shift internally very hard. But what is probably not so well known is there was no resistance to my proposed shift. Hmm. I expected there to be tremendous resistance. But because there was no real AAA content coming down the line for the Vita, either from first party or third party, we needed content. Otherwise, there was nothing. You hmm. cannot have a platform, a device, survive without content. If there's a common thread that runs through heroic failures, it's the lack of excellent content. Because if you have sufficient content and there is, they call it product market fit, and the Vita didn't have that because the market has shifted massively. It was designed with really, really great intentions. Don't forget, the Vita, like the PS4, 
was actually um, storyboarded, if you like, and in no small measure specified by Mark Cerny and team hmm. as part of the same project. So the PS4 was codenamed Orbis and uh, the Vita was codenamed Vita. And then it was, you <laughs> know, the, the, the code names became um, final for the Vita, the, but not for the PS4. So it was the same design language. It was the same kind of internal structure. But where the PS4 was successful, the Vita was not. And the reason was the PS4 achieved product market fit and the Vita did not. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons. And the, these reasons are repeatable. And sadly, people do make the same mistakes. It was a very expensive device at a time when you could buy less expensive devices by Nintendo. And that meant you restricted your market. It, uses, it used um, proprietary cards, which were ludicrously expensive, which added to the high purchase price. It was a premium feeling device, which is great, but it means you don't just chuck it in a bag and therefore compromised its portability somewhat. And then, of course, it required, because of its power, here's the interesting thing, because of its power, because of all of that, it's actually almost as expensive to make a really good Vita game, a AAA Vita game, as it is to make one for the PS3 or the PS4. Huh. So what are you going to choose? If you're a publisher and you need to make a game that looks like a AAA game, are you going to go for the PS3, which, by the way, I'll, I'll talk about later um, and, and explain why I consider that a heroic failure, even though it ended up exceeding um, the sales of the competition. The, the market for a PS3 game was large. The market for a Vita game was small. So where is the developer going to expend their resources? That applies equally for first-party studios. If you have a large install base compared to a small install base, then you are limited by the number of high-quality developers. They're, they're in short supply. You know, these people don't grow mm -hmm. on trees. <laughs> and to get the best out of a portable device, which has all of this power, is actually harder because you have considerations like power management and storage and speed, all of these things are compromised compared to something like a, a stationary console. And for these and many other reasons, the Vita didn't achieve critical mass early enough that would allow developers, certainly larger developers who create AAA titles, to target the device profitably. It made no sense for them. The opportunity cost would have been ridiculous. And, you know, PlayStation incentivized a lot of people, but the incentives aren't enough. You cannot get back the time that you have spent in developing a really top-notch, top-flight game for a portable device when you could have been spending that time on a device that has five times, ten times the market share. It makes no sense to do that. This is why publishers and developers are so careful about which platforms they target. And this is why the Switch was much more successful, because everybody could see that this device was going to take off. With Vita, you have to remember there was an argument that this would compete against the dominant smartphones of the time, at that time, the, the iPhone. Because the first Vitas, if you remember, 
had 3G capability. Yeah. You could insert a SIM into them, right? How many people used that? Not many. Because that, that, there was a feature that people didn't actually ask for. But we presumed that they might want to be able to download and play games on the go on a premium gaming device. Well, they could already do that on their smartphones. And the type of people who were playing games on the smartphones were happy with the games they had and they weren't asking for AAA. I know uh, the likes of Apple and Google would like to see increasingly high quality games on their devices. But the fact is, the same restrictions that apply to Vita AAA development apply even more so to a device like a smartphone that shares its resources with the apps that its user will run in his or her daily life. So for this and many other reasons, it was very hard for publishers and developers to commit to AAA games for the device. And all of the promises started to fall away as critical mass failed to develop, which is where I came in. <laughs> uh, so... Um, I, I was part of the business development team, and I'll keep this short because this story is quite well documented, but I was part of a business development team, and my concern was not Vita. You might find that a bit odd to say. My concern was PlayStation in general. I feared that we were becoming irrelevant amongst the burgeoning and very exciting and very active indie development scene, which was finding prominence on Steam and to some extent on smartphones, mainly on Steam, though. And I saw all these great games and all these great developers and this massive ecosystem flourishing and brilliant creators, the future of development. And I saw that none of them were interested in PlayStation. That was my concern. So I used that as a vehicle to get developers more engaged with PlayStation in general. Of course, it started with the Vita, but it very quickly got extended to PS3, to PS4, and later even to PSVR. So that, that was the idea. The idea was PlayStation seems to be less and less relevant to the future of development. And for that reason, and also to cover the fact that we have no content coming to Vita, let's get these people onto Vita by offering them really, really good terms being really open, giving them a lot of prominence. You know, they, they were featured widely in our uh, PR events. And, and that will help us with the development community and also to create a team that bent over backwards, broke their backs to help developers so that they wouldn't have to suffer mm. the machinery of PlayStation. Because let's face it, for a tiny independent developer to deal with a large company like PlayStation that had forgotten its roots, it's really, really difficult. You could really get easily lost in that system or, or even damaged. And so my focus was to improve that experience. Call it a better customer experience project, if you like, with the customer being the developer. And that's how we managed to get, and to cut a massive story short, how we managed to get so many developers excited about PlayStation in such a short period of time. The big breakthrough came, I think, when the, the US got involved. So this project started in Europe with my team. Mm -hmm. But it was when Adam Boy's team got involved that things really took off. Um, and, and that helped to push the PR side of things in a really glitzy and approachable way. You know, they spoke the right sort of language. 
They had the right sort of approach, the right sort of presentation, and they gave it the marketing that it was that it desperately needed. And when I say marketing, I mean the marketing to the developer community. So I think that was a really, really important stage in the explosion of that engagement. But it didn't save the Vita. All it did was it extended its life and it gave it a lot of love. And as you say, provided a platform for incredible games. And I really did firmly believe at the time, and I said it very publicly, that the best place for these games is on a Vita. Imagine being able to play Hotline Miami Mm-hmm. on this tiny, beautiful device with the OLED screen. Imagine being able to play Lone Survivor. Imagine being able to play Volume. Imagine being able to play Luftrausers. Imagine being able to play, you know, the, later on you had some fantastic stuff like Rogue Legacy coming to Vita mm-hmm. as well. And and then later on to PS4. These were beautiful titles that were perfectly suited to that screen. The other thing to bear in mind is that, and I'll talk about this later, is that these these games don't necessarily work as well on a larger screen as they do on a smaller screen. And when that screen is OLED, they really pop, mm-hmm. especially Pixelot, really pops in a small OLED screen. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it was not, it, I think for those reasons, it was a heroic failure because we managed to extend the life of the Vita to keep it relevant because you can't have a device relevant if there's no software for it. The software problem was solved to some degree, but the sales were never solved because let's face it, the mass market wants AAA. That's what they expected of PlayStation. We were not able to deliver that to them. And and sadly, because of that, we were never able to reach critical mass. Now, all that said, the device was a big success in Japan. You know, the Japanese office were very happy with sales of the beat in Japan. It was just in the West that um, we didn't deliver on expectation. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, especially when you consider all the, uh, even the, the JRPGs that were available on the Vita, uh, that you could get, and, and the, the backward compatibility with the PSP. It was a really strong catalog between that and indie games in Japan. I mean, I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, I yeah, the Vita I, it holds a very dear place in my heart. And it's, you know, the, the console that uh, Mike and I used to talk about all the time in the games when we first began doing uh, video game shows. So yeah, uh, thank you for, for that perspective, Shahid. But you, ha- you do have a few more examples of failures, uh, heroic failures that you want to talk about. So why don't you start by telling me about the Ouya? Because I, I remember about this console on Kickstarter. Honestly, at the time, I was going through a bunch of uh, personal problems and I didn't really pay attention to this, but I, this is a name that kept coming up, especially when, and we're going to talk about this later, when Towerfall uh, came out. So what's the story of the Ouya? You're absolutely right. It was a Kickstarter phenomenon. I think it's probably one of Kickstarter's biggest ever successes. Yeah. And it achieved eight times its original target, which I think was just... I think they were targeting just shy of a million US and they achieved around 8 million US. Now, what was the Ouya? It was meant to be a developer-friendly console, mm. costing very little, costing 99 US dollars, which was essentially based on an Android chipset. Right. And the, the aim was to make it as open as possible and to have every Ouya be... Uh, basically a dev kit. I mean, we call it a dev kit, but it isn't a dev kit. What they're saying is that you can target the Ouya device in the same way that you can target any Android smartphone for development. Because as we know, if you you get an Android smartphone, all you need to do is get the Android software development kit and you can make 
right stuff for it right it's very easy to do so that's that's what they were what they were pitching uh, the other thing they wanted to do was to make it really hackable <clears throat> to allow jailbreaking out of the box if you like you know um that never really took hold one of the things that they tried to do was to offer free versions of every game so that people could try anything that didn't quite work out. And the reason it didn't work out is they didn't really have a well-thought-out payment system. So every developer had their own idea as to how to monetize the free content. There was no clear path. It's interesting because when, when the Kickstarter launched, you had some of the biggest indie luminaries talking about the Ouya as a really excellent idea. The likes of Genova Chen, um, Adam Saltzman, who... Um, who's one of my heroes, and David Edry, who I later went and worked with at PlayStation. These people gave it a lot of support, and you can still see their their quotes on the original Kickstarter page, which I think is still around, actually. Yeah, yeah. So the idea was it was an independent developer-focused console, which sadly didn't gain traction. Now, why didn't it gain traction? I don't think it was really finished when it launched. I don't think the UI was finished. I don't think the controller was was that good. And again, I'm not sure that there was a great product market fit there. The demand wasn't in the market because the market was happy to pay for good quality consoles. We'd seen that. You know, the the market already had the at that time the PS3, which is beginning to sell really well by that point towards the end of its life, PS3 um overtook xbox 360 in global sales um and of course it was up against the xbox uh it didn't have so much competition from nintendo what it did have in terms of advantage was that all of these platforms were very closed it's very hard to get as an uh, as an independent developer it's very hard to get a game onto uh the traditional manufacturer's devices mm-hmm that was a so so going back to the Vita, that was something that I really wanted to fix was let's forget about the content approval thing. The first thing I asked for was we need to get rid of this content approval bar and just let these people onto the onto the right. platforms, you know? And, right. and that's what opened the floodgates. Otherwise these things might well have been rejected and that would have been really bad, you know. So we got rid of that and and that opened up the floodgates. And that did that 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 happened as early as twenty twelve. And that uh-huh. was around the time of the Ouya launch. But when you do talk about uh, about product market fit, right? Yeah. Uh, is is an open console that can be hacked and can be, you know, everyone can develop games for really what consumers are after? No. Like, is there, ex- no, it's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. So it was a product market fit for developers. Right. But not <laughs> yeah. for customers. No. You know? <laughs> Customers didn't need it. Customers were happy paying two or three times that price for one of these top-end devices to get their AAA games. And if you wanted indie games, well, you had Steam. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Th- th- that was a shame. Now, now obviously, as, as somebody who is very developer-focused, who has mm. advocated for developers their entire career, I consider it a heroic failure because I think the principles were good principles. It just wasn't necessarily the right thing for customers. And I think they rushed it. If they'd waited a little while, got the UI absolutely perfect, got the controller 
really right if they thought through the store? Because this is something that larger companies spend a long time thinking about. It's not easy doing a good store. We still haven't got great stores across the board. They're getting better. But, you know, some, some people are now suggesting that the, the, the right way of approaching stores is just to have tons of them mm. and have them headed up by curators. I don't know if that's the answer. I mean, I'm confused enough as it is. You know, where do I go to get my games? I mean, even on an iPhone, I now have two ways of getting games. I can go to the standard store or I can download them from Apple Arcade, you know? So I don't think that's necessarily the answer. They were just addressing the wrong problem too soon um, in terms of their hardware stability and in terms of their software stability, but too late to get the people who are already big on Steam and who are beginning to now move over to PlayStation. So they fell between the cracks. They tried to get it out quickly. The other thing that they did was when they realized that things were not looking good, when they were not attracting developers who were their primary market to the to the device, they started to get really aggressive in terms of acquisitions. And when I say aggressive, I mean, I hear stories from developers that they were not treated particularly well. And, and, mm. and that's sad. That's very sad. Mm. You can have good, good principles and a bad product. And, and, and I guess it's all about the last 20%, right? The, the final uh, delivery of a product, like getting all the details right and getting the marketing right and, and understanding all the different ways that customers can use your product because you can have a really good idea that is executed poorly. And that feels like what the Ouya did here. Yeah, they executed it poorly. And I think they panicked slightly because they fell mm. in between the gap between the... The, the developers being active on Steam and then beginning to join PlayStation. Mm -hmm. And they were beginning to lose a lot of people to PlayStation because PlayStation was obviously more exciting. You know, if, you're, if your principal claim is that the other platforms are closed and suddenly uh, there, there's this guy with a big mouth in PlayStation saying, actually, no, <laughs> you know, come, you're all welcome. You know, I'll, I'll, I used to give out my personal email address on Twitter publicly, you know, uh, I was very open, just contact me 24 seven. And I meant 24 seven, I would be contacted by developers from five o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock at night. And I would happily wow. field all of those calls because I knew that that would make the difference. And it did. Mm -hmm. And so when you're up against that, and your device is not as ready or as polished as the competition. What do consumers like? Do consumers like a polished PS3, which is soon going to be replaced by a PS4? Do cons consumers even prefer the Vita? I mean, if you talk in pure sales numbers, the Vita, despite being a heroic failure, still obviously sold way more than, than the Ouya. Mm -hmm. It was the wrong market. It was the wrong type of device. It was rushed, as you mentioned. Um, it came a little bit late and it lost its critical advantage. This episode of Remaster is brought to you by Hello. Hello make insanely comfortable buckwheat pillows. I have no idea if you've ever tried a buckwheat pillow, but darn it, you should because they're super different to your regular fluffy pillows. They don't collapse under the weight of your head like traditional pillows. They give you the support that your head and neck needs for a comfortable night's sleep. Hello stays cool and dry compared to feather or foam pillows. You don't have to do that thing where you're swapping your pillow over to make sure you get the cool side. Every side of a hollow pillow is cool and it's a cool pillow too. Buckwheat tends to breathe better. That's what these fills these pillows, is buckwheat holes. 
they allow for the air to pass through so it doesn't get all warm and humid. And also you can add and remove the filling as well to make this pillow the exact size that you want it to be. These types of pillows have been popular in Japan and at high-end hotels for a long time. Um, people really love these things, including me. I've been sleeping on a hollow pillow for about nine months and I absolutely, oh, longer than that actually, like 18 months I think now. And I absolutely adore it. I would never go back. I love my hollow pillow. I have a second one now too. I'm just, yeah, whenever I'm not home and I am sleeping on, like in a hotel or something when traveling for work, I always miss my hollow pillow. Hollow pillows are made in the USA of quality construction and materials. The certified organic cotton case is cut and sewn for durability, and the buckwheat is grown and milled in the United States as well. I'm sure you'll be try- curious to go and give one of these things a try, right? And you should. You can sleep on it for 60 nights, and if hollow isn't right for you, just send it back. You'll get a full refund. Go to hollowpillow.com slash remaster and get your buckwheat pillow. That's H-U-L-L-O-P-I-L-L-O-W.com slash remaster. And if you buy more than one, they have a special discount for up to $20 off, depending on the size you opt for. They have fast, free shipping of every order, and 1% of all profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Give it a try. If you love it, you keep it. If you don't, just send it back. Go to hollowpillow.com slash remaster. And thanks to Hollow for their support of this show. Now, Shade, why is the Sega Saturn in your list instead of the Dreamcast? Because it is a really, really great question. <laughs> because I think that the Saturn is where Sega first started to experience its PS3 moment. Hmm. Oh, PS3 moment? Yeah. Okay, but... this is a this is a whole thing you gotta explain to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what I mean by that is the the previous generation, the Genesis in the US and the Mega Drive in Europe, was a success. It was a great machine. I had a lovely processor. It was in some ways not as powerful as the Super Nintendo or the Super Famicom. And in some ways it was more powerful. So it did really well, and of course it had Sonic. The Saturn, though, is an example of a touch of hubris creeping into Sega's thinking. The feeling that no matter what hardware they built, the strength and power of their software teams would cover up for any issues. Uh, I see where this is going. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The the hardware was tremendously complex, and they were beginning to understand that there was a new kid on the block about to join the market. That new kid on the block, of course, was Sony with their PlayStation. Mm. Now, the architecture, as we subsequently learned, I say subsequently, we're, we're now talking about 1994, was a lot simpler on the PlayStation. And PlayStation's approach as we all know with developers, was very open to begin with. They wanted all of the developers, and they had a simple architecture. Now, remind you of anything? I mean, that's exactly what PlayStation returned to with PS4. A very open approach with developers and simplified hardware at a good price. The problem with the Saturn was that it was a really, really good machine, but it was very, very complicated to make software for. Really complicated because it had, I think it had a crazy number of chips. I think it was seven chips. It had, it was based on this 
uh, risk architecture, you know, like the arm is based on risk architecture. For those who don't know what, what I'm talking about when I say risk, it's an acronym. R-I-S-C stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. Mm. And I'm not saying this because I looked it up on Wikipedia. I am an assembler programmer from 1982. <laughs> so I know this stuff very, very you well. I actually do know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I do know this stuff. Um, it's very sad because it's less relevant now. Nobody uses uh, that kind of terminology anymore because that has become the de facto standard architecture for pretty much all, uh, certainly all mobile class devices. And hopefully we'll at some point become the de facto standard in Macs, allowing them battery lives of 24 hours. But I digress, I digress. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, <laughs> so what, what, what is good about a RISC architecture is it doesn't consume too much power. So it has a very simple instruction set, doesn't consume too much power, so it can operate very, very quickly. It has very simple instructions. So it had two. It had two of these chips that it co-designed with Hitachi called the SH2, but they realized this wasn't going to be enough to give them 2D and 3D. They knew the PlayStation was going to be able to do decent texture mapping. So they started adding chips left, right, and center. And they ended up with over half a dozen. And it was just crazy complex. Huh. Remind you of the PS3 much? You know? So because of that, it was a beast. And it was very, very hard to make software for. So it took longer. Now, at the beginning of the life of any hardware, the worst thing you can do is make it too complicated for developers to master because it means you're going to be late to market with games. So any hardware manufacturer who thinks that making really complex, powerful hardware is the answer, no, don't do that, please. So what happened is that there were great games on the Saturn. I loved playing Sega Rally on the Saturn. It wasn't arcade perfect. But, you know, those are the days when I would go to the arcades with friends to play Sega Rally. And it was not bad being able to play Sega Rally at home. So they had that software advantage. They had access to the teams who were making that software. had Virtua Fighter. And it even had Tomb Raider, I think slightly before the PlayStation version. Hmm. But it was beaten by an upstart. And it was beaten for two reasons. The first was that it was too complicated. And the second was because it was priced too high. So they released at 399 US. Okay, it came with Virtua Fighter, but it was 399. When the PlayStation was announced, it was announced at 299 without Virtua Fighter, but you know, headline 399, 299. Mm-hmm. Now, when the Xbox One was announced, it was announced at 100 bucks higher. Yeah. Okay, it came with a Kinect camera. But what people came away with was that 100 bucks higher price differential. It was an unfocused message. So these, these are the reasons. I mean, it's interesting because the Saturn actually started off doing better than the PlayStation before the PlayStation ran away. So it's sad because it had a great library, but the hubris in developing a machine of that complexity thinking that you could wipe out the market, thinking that your only competition was going to be the Nintendo 64 and pricing it really high because, let's face it, complex hardware needs to be priced high. Otherwise, you're going to make a really big dent in your in your profits. Mm-hmm. Even if you're using the, the, the razor and blades model, you can't take a stupid hit on the hardware. Otherwise, you'll never climb out of the hole. This is a lesson that PlayStation learned with the PS3, which took a 2 billion hit on the hardware development. 
So this is why, well, yeah, there are many reasons why I consider the Sega Saturn a heroic failure. It was loved. It was a really, truly loved machine. The 2D hardware was superb. The games on it were excellent. But it was too expensive, and it lost momentum, and PlayStation stole the show. And where PlayStation didn't steal the show, the Nintendo 64 was better for 3D. Of course, the Nintendo 64 right. had games like uh, uh, the genre-busting Mario 64. Mm-hmm. And the absolutely stellar GoldenEye and many, yep. many, many others. So it was it was actually setting the bar for 3D innovation, whereas PlayStation was setting the bar for breadth and quality of content. It sounds like a textbook case of disruptive innovation. So the upstart taking on the established player uh, that thinks that their position cannot be touched by anybody and yet the upstart comes in and has a better product that is lower priced and that consumers prefer this is to me it's basically what this disruption looks like yeah this this is absolutely uh hitting the nail on the head and and it's it's timely you should use that expression by the way because the person who coined that expression just passed away um Christensen, for those yes, who aren't aware, Professor passed away very, very yeah. sadly. One of my heroes, I've read his books and recommend them highly to everybody. Um, he had a big effect on my thinking. And uh, without him, there might well not have been a strategic content because hmm. um, his ideas made me realize that PlayStation needed to disrupt itself from within. And that's exactly what strategic right. content did. So where the what's the parallel with the PS3? Because I find that fascinating. Is it it's about the, the the hardware complexity, right? Yeah. Yeah, the hardware complexity, the price, the momentum from previous success and hubris. So the, the PS3 was third generation in the way the Sega Saturn was third generation. So the PS1 was simple, just as the original uh Sega was simple. And then you had the Genesis, which was a 16-bit evolution of the Sega, second generation, really cleaned up. And then you thought, as Sega, you're thinking, yeah, let's make it even more powerful, even more complex. Make it more powerful, but don't make it complex. So PS3 was extremely powerful, but way too complex. And people did eventually unlock the power. It was through sheer force of will that PlayStation managed to survive that long, long period of losses. Uh, through through which it completely changed as a company and managed to overcome that and overcome the lead established by Xbox with their 360 and start to create software of phenomenal quality in a really phenomenal quality. So Uncharted, of course, was mm-hmm. uh, a PS3 game. It would not have been possible to create software of that quality on an Xbox 360, but it took years and years and years of understanding how to use the SPUs which were the DSP-like chips, um, co-processing chips, if you like, on the PS3. It took years to be able to unlock the full power of that machine, along with its limitations. Mm. Saturn never really had that chance. They had the opportunity to correct it with the Dreamcast. They did not. Uh, They made similar mistakes. They were vague. What they did was they jumped to effectively an Xbox One type of messaging which didn't work. Microsoft, mm. of course, to their credit, were able to correct, to course correct, 
to have a cultural revolution and they're now in a very healthy place. Sega were not. And Sega made the very, very difficult decision of going software only. Right. But of course, you know, software is what they were really, really good at. They were really good at hardware. They just got the pricing wrong. They got the complexity wrong. PlayStation were able to recover from um, the pain of PS3, even though it was eventually a success. Uh, they were able to recover by going back to first principles. Sega didn't go back to first principles. Mm-hmm. And that's why ultimately they, they failed. Mm-hmm. They forgot about customers. They forgot about product market fit. And for that reason, they had to make very, very difficult decisions. Do you feel like hubris, after an incredible success, is just something that cannot be avoided at these large companies? Because it feels like it's a trend. After an incredible success, whether it's the Nintendo Wii or the PS2, or uh, in the case of Sega, for example, like hubris comes in and bad decisions happen. Yeah, it's inevitable. Christensen talks about this uh, very often in his books. Hmm. It's almost inevitable. You have to di- you have to disrupt yourself massively if you're if you're to survive your own success. But why would you do that, right? Because you're so successful, you're you obviously think you're untouchable. The the way you do it is you set up separate teams. Hmm. You keep the original cash cow going, but you make the focus of the company the future. Hmm. And especially in a fast moving technical world, it becomes increasingly important to do that. You know that the future is not your current cash cow. And if you don't disrupt yourself, if you don't set up separate parallel teams to do that, small teams that are not encumbered by the processes that built the original, then you're Mm -hmm. in trouble. You know, to some extent, if you look at what Google has done with spinning itself out and being a subsidiary of Alphabet, it's a similar sort of thinking. Because it's not the same as Apple. Apple is very different. Apple has the approach where everything is simplified, straightforward, and so on. And um, I I tell you what's interesting. Uh, Horowitz talks about this in his recent book, um, uh, What You Do Is Who You Are. Hmm. He talks about Apple having a very, very different approach to Google and that it's okay for the cultures to be different because they have have different objectives. Mm Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's very interesting for me. But he, to, right towards the end of the book, he talks about having either a wartime CEO or a peacetime CEO. And what happens to companies that have hubris is that they think innovation will come from a peacetime CEO, and it will not. And that's huh. when you need to bring in a wartime CEO. You, you needed wartime CEO at PlayStation when PS3 um, was was beginning to look like it was in trouble. And that is what happened. PlayStation, to their credit, um, changed the leadership because although, uh, and I won't mention names, although the previous leadership was excellent, truly excellent, class leading, they needed a different type of CEO to manage that difficult transition. That's exactly what they did. Hmm. This doesn't happen quickly enough in other companies. How early is failure or hubris that may lead to failure detected internally? Is it, is, is it something that, like I'm, I'm trying to think, it's like what if a company is under the delusion that uh, what they're doing is the right thing they're doing and, and the console that they have is the right console and the, 
and their developer strategy is the right one. Uh, how do these failures happen? Like, what's the first? What's the first crack? The first sign that should be observed internally? How how does it happen? Like, because it's easy to say, well, the the Wii U failed, or like. Uh, you know, the we talked about the, the 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 PS Vita, and we talked about the GameCube. But like, how early do these things go? You know, are recognized internally, and is, is it a problem if they're not? I mean, obviously, there it's a problem if they're not. But what's this? What's the sort of process that leads a company to say, "Oh no, we're in trouble now"? People know this very, very, very soon. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the CEO will have access to projections, forecasts, initial orders, sales figures, inventory, and uh, sell-through. They'll know very, very quickly. Hmm. What they're able to do about it, though, is very limited. Because what tools do you have? You know, you, the tools you have are pricing. But that, that's a decision that took a long time to come about. And if you change pricing too soon... What kind of message does that send to the market? What kind of message does that send about your leadership? It's not that companies don't try. I remember PlayStation tried like crazy to get partners for Vita. And no matter the incentives offered, it was really, really hard for the reasons I discussed. The opportunity cost for a high, um, uh, a high technical quality device was just too high. You know, mm. and there are some problems that just cannot be solved. And so you, you, you take other measures. But sometimes these problems simply can't be solved at all. I mean, in the case of, say, uh, the Wii U, you have to look for that longer-term strategy. And the longer-term strategy was Nintendo had huge investment in its R&D and had this other thing going called the Switch. Mm-hmm. They, had a long, they took a longer-term view. The Wii U was not the thing on which the company was dependent. Thankfully, they'd built built up massive cash reserves thanks to the enormous success of the Wii. Mm -hmm. And so they were not in financial trouble and they were able to stay the course because they knew the strategy underlying it that the use case for these devices will change would eventually bear fruit. I think with the Wii U, the problem was they communicated the device very badly and they, they misunderstood the needs of the market. But they knew that if they finessed that for the Switch, they would be okay. And they were able to salvage the, yeah. the library of games, even, uh, for the Switch. Very good point. That is an excellent point. And that is not necessarily an advantage that anybody else enjoys. Right. Like, right. like with a PS3, there was absolutely no compatibility between PS3 and PS4. The architectures were markedly different. Same with Saturn and Dreamcast. The architectures were completely different. Yes, they simplified, Sega simplified massively for the Dreamcast. The architecture was much more streamlined. But by then, people had lost faith in the market and moved on, and there were new players on the scene. So how do, how do you think companies should learn from failure? Like, we remember heroic failures because, they, I mean, they, I believe your examples have made for really excellent uh, type of, you know, different historic video game uh, entertainment. But like f- from, a, from a business perspective, how do you take something that failed? And I mean, the Wii U and the Switch are one example. But is there 
uh, is there any other method or any other strategy that you would say the companies should learn from failure and spin that to their advantage? Yeah, this this is um, very, very difficult to do because hardware development costs are so high and continuity, particularly in terms of architecture, can leave you at a competitive disadvantage when hardware changes. Now, if you look at the, the, the smartphone world, the way that works is with incremental changes year on year with very few disruptions over the last 10 years. Hardware in every area has got slightly better every single year. Now we have profoundly powerful hardware. And of course, we know that both PlayStation and Microsoft kind of learned from this in that they had their own TikTok cycles introduced. So you have PS4 Pro as an example of addressing that cycle. And you have Xbox, of course, doing very, very similar thing. Um, so apart from that, it's very hard to see how you're going to get around the issue of creating class-leading hardware. The best, I think the best antidote to this would be to make games hardware independent. And Google are betting on that with Stadia. And Microsoft, I think in the long term, are not betting entirely on that, but because they have such a big advantage in having created the Azure platform, it's something that other companies are looking to partner up with Microsoft on to, to make games hardware independent. I don't know if that's necessarily the entire answer. I do think games are going to become more and more fragmented, and so it's going to be harder to learn the lessons of the past and apply them. There are some things that always hold true, though, and that is you have to get developers on board very early. You have to make architecture very easy to develop for mm. straight out of the bat. And you have to give people a sense, and when I say people, I mean developers, a sense that the product will achieve product market fit. Nintendo achieved this with Switch. They were able to get people on board very quickly. Why? Because the messaging was so clear. With Vita, the messaging was not clear. With Wii U, the messaging was not clear. There was not a clear product market fit proposition for developers and publishers. Now, if you achieve all of these things, you got a chance. I'm not saying that guarantees you success. Here, here's the thing. See, people talk about these are the keys to success. I, I don't believe in that. There are no keys to success. But there are clues to failure. Hmm. And if you avoid failure long enough and you keep strong long enough, if you survive the failures enough, then you will build a strong DNA that will prove resilient. For me, the only success is evolution. And when I say evolution, punctuated by the odd Cambrian explosion, right? The odd asteroid hitting. We've had several of those asteroid hitting events in technology. Smartphones were one of those. Digital distribution was one of those. Moving from very close platforms to more open, but not completely open platforms, was another one of those asteroid hitting events. 
Um, streaming might well be the other. It's certainly proven to be the case in non-interactive uh, linear media, mm -hmm. but in non-linear media might prove to be a bit more problematic. <laughs>